Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG, and this is the first podcast or live podcast, should I say, of the uh, of the year. It is our uh, quarterly insight podcast. Uh, this uh, accompanies our Q1 2023 insight document. Uh, you can actually download that from the uh, EFG website. Uh, and of course, you can then download it and you can listen to us at the same time uh, talking about it. So uh, for this insight, I have uh, Paul Templeton. Paul, welcome. Thank Good you very much. You. Thank you. Good nice to be you. here. And we have um, Gianluigi, as normal, and Daniel, and of course, Joaquin. So hopefully, you know all of those gentlemen already. So, um, Stefan can't join us. He's on holiday this week, very early on in here in January. Um, so, um, the title of this um, insight is Looking Forward and Looking Back, or as uh, the Roman god Janus, Janus, or... Uh, Gianluigi, what did you call it? Giano. Giano, right, okay. So uh, so we have all versions, American, English, and Italian versions uh, of, uh, of the front cover. But uh, we'll start with uh, Paul to just give us a quick overview. Uh, one of the focuses we certainly felt in the early part of this year was uh, China and um, China reopening, given the, um, uh, the fact that it, China itself had caused huge disruptions, uh, both in uh, 2022 and, and 2021. Uh, and of course, just right at the end of the year, um, uh, it uh, radically opened. It's probably the right word to use, given that um, um, given usually how slowly these things move. But uh, Paul, uh, your thoughts on China's impact um, are quite clearly documented on, uh, you know, on, on this first page, on page two. Well, I, yes. Well, when we when we look back, I mean, we can look back at the last year or two years, but of course they're very unusual years. And uh, I like Daniel's phrase: uh, a lot of highly unpredictable and far-reaching events in twenty twenty-two. Uh, so I look back a little bit further for China, and of course, pre-COVID, what was the China story? It was all about China quarter after quarter churning out solid growth, six or seven percent at an annualized rate. A lot of people didn't believe it, and we had various proxy measures of what we was really growing at. But there was no doubt it was growing consistently and strongly. It wasn't really a source of volatility for the world. So that, for me, raises the question, if we look back, do we go back to that sort of period of stability and a steady contribution to world growth? Now, it's not going to... I'm sure it's not going to happen in the way that we now see... China's growth at an annualised rate just come in quarter after quarter at 6 or 7%. That seems unrealistic after the sort of volatility we've had in the last two years. But can it once again make a meaningful contribution to world growth? I think the answer to that is, yes, it can. And the chart we use, figure two, is a one we've used a few times before, taken from the IMF. What contributes to the world economy growing... China saved the world from recession in 2020. It made a big contribution in 2021 when it did open, you know, we forget that it did sort of open up quite successfully after the sort of first sort of COVID sort of problems. And so what can we expect from here? I mean, it is a big economy uh, growing at a rate which is faster than the advanced economies. 
And for most of the advanced economies this year, we're talking about slow growth or something that might well be recession in sort of certain areas. But I think looking at what might happen for the entire world, it's not a reliance on China that seems realistic sort of going forward, but a, more of a, an emphasis on the China alternatives. And in that sort of realm, I would put economies like Vietnam or some of the other Asian economies. Um, we talk a little bit later on in the document about the Middle East and North Africa. And, you know, is outsourcing to Africa finally a story? Uh, will Latin America sort of be, make a more consistent sort of contribution to sort of world growth? And I think the answer to that is, well, we're hopeful. Um, but Moses, you've just said, you know, China's reopening seems to have been, had a big impact really very immediately in just the first few years, uh, few days of the, of the new year, both in terms of the economic numbers, tourism numbers, for example, but also the stock market. So it could well be that this is actually once again a big contributor to world growth, which does help help offset all of the uh, concerns that we see in the more advanced economies. But, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to point out the three obstacles still that... Uh, China faces. Um, one is it's no longer as cheap, and the the um, chart we have, chart five on average monthly wages in China, twelve hundred dollars, and in Vietnam, three hundred dollars. You know, a quarter of the sort of labour cost. If you use this very crude sort of measure, um, the housing market. Gosh, uh, trying to ascertain what might happen there. I um, took some numbers from a company called Numbio, which is an interesting uh, 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 um, research organisation. I think the numbers look good, um, but the startling thing from that is house prices in China still seem to be astonishingly high. I mean, we all know that places like San Francisco are well known for having very, very expensive housing, London as well. But according to Numbio, San Francisco house prices are around seven times average earnings. And in Shanghai, uh, they are almost 50 times. Um, so well into bubble territory, if you believe those numbers. Um, so those two concerns, you know, China's not as cheap. The housing bubble may not have deflated. And the demographics, which is receiving a lot more attention now. China's population is shrinking it's the same in other Asian economies. I was just hearing this morning that the, I don't like the word, the, the phrase, the fertility rate. It all sounds a bit too biological to me, but the fertility rate in Korea is now way below one. So South Korea's population's shrinking, um, China's population sort of shrinking. So those three sort of longer term sort of issues about whether China can support growth. It's interesting, you know, when I was looking at this chart, I was just thinking what Tokyo would probably looking like, you know, uh, 20 years ago, where here it seems a, a relatively modest, you know, 12 times. 12 times. You know, whereas, you know, back in the day, 20 or 30 years ago, it probably was up there where the Chinese ones are. It probably was. Uh, yes, it probably yeah. was the 50s or yeah. 60s or 70s, yeah. yes. And we know that those bubbles... 
take a long time to correct. Mm. Um, it's, I don't know. I tend to think it, it, it's certainly not a Lehman-type bubble and a correction like that, you know, subprime type of correction. It's more of a slow burn correction. Uh, coupled with, do we really believe these are the right sort of numbers? Is it really giving us the right picture? Yeah. And that's always the problem with China, isn't it? You know, we've got all these numbers coming out, you know, official data, but, you know, to what extent are they really giving the right picture? Mm. No, absolutely. But it certainly gives it a, a very interesting. Uh, and then I guess the the other point here on, the, on uh, chart seven is, the um the source of inputs you know, china sort of you know starting to waken up um it's gonna suck in a lot of imports yeah i mean that was very much something which you said to look at and uh, it's it's very it's very very interesting sort of picture and that you know which economies will benefit um and so for example i mean we know that latin america would benefit from sort of commodity sort of exports for for, for example but in europe i mean Germany is an obvious beneficiary of an opening up of China, but also Switzerland, which is probably rather more surprising. I mean, that's one of the third largest beneficiaries. So, um, and then the Middle East and and, uh, and Africa, which we talk about later on in the document, again, big sort of beneficiaries of that opening up, maybe because of energy Im imports. But yeah, China, for a long time, people thought, oh, China's only growing because it's exporting a lot of stuff. That's never been true. I mean, it's always, net exports have never been a big contribution to China's overall growth. It's been largely domestic demand. And this is the other thing that's somewhat neglected. China does import a lot of stuff uh, from, well, all regions of the world, but Europe in particular, and I know that's a theme you're very interested in, uh, should get a good benefit from China's opening up, demand for luxury goods in particular. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And I think there's also, uh, you know, over the years, the other big phenomenon, certainly when you, when you think about bottom-up, is uh, Chinese tourists going abroad and buying lots of luxury goods is always the, the most obvious, but, but any of the other goods, uh, either in Japan or Korea, uh, also are, are big beneficiaries of that. So, no, it, it certainly has an impact, and um, uh, certainly already, as, as you quite rightly say, in the first, you know, couple of weeks of the year, you know, people have, well, certainly investors have focused on that uh, and, and what that might mean for um, earnings and valuations. Yeah, I mean, so the looking back, you know, going back to pre-COVID and how we used to think about China in the world and that sort of consumer behaviour, maybe it is worth reconsidering that. Maybe we do get back to that situation. Certainly, I think that's um, certainly... Already in the first few days of the of the year, certainly one of the 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 dominant themes. Um, we then move on to page four, which is the asset market performance. Um, uh, rather sorry picture, particularly from a multi asset perspective, um, given how poorly markets, uh, both across fixed income and equities, did in twenty twenty two. Really, not not much uh, in terms of hiding places. Obviously, hedge funds, um, both equity market neutral and macro seem to be the two asset classes that seem to have done well and, and thrived in, in 2022. But interesting to see. I mean, th that strategy itself has had a very tough five or six years. So it's their first year in, in many years that they've been able to produce, um, produce those sort of outsized return. be interesting to see if they're able to continue that in uh, 2023, uh, but certainly um, not not 
much um, not, not a happy picture here unless you're a, a Japanese yen investor <laughs> or a or a um, uh, or, or someone who only invests in Brazilian stock markets, um, which uh, obviously was the other market that did particularly well and also skewed to the first half of the year because it certainly didn't do particularly well in the second half of the year. And one of the few where you've got a gain against the dollar. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah very, very, very unusual. Um, so let's move to the US. And um, uh, this section, I think, is particularly um, uh, interesting. Uh, and it is about, of course, inflation and interest rates and the yield curve and recession. So it seems to be uh, what uh, investors are most fixated on, certainly through December and, and so far in uh, in January. Um, maybe Daniel. Yeah, uh, sorry, Miles. I mean, I think it's, it's, yeah, the market is focusing really on one dimension here at the moment, which is how far will rates go and when will the Fed stop hiking rates? And I think market expectations about this are a little bit more dovish than the Fed. The Fed is talking about at least another 100 basis points of hikes, and that sort of demonstrated in its dot plots. But market's currently pricing in only about 50. And I think our view is, that um, we're a bit more aligned with the market uh, on this, um, predominantly because we we think the inflation situation is um, is going to roll over um, as the year progresses. I think um, you know if we if we consider the Fed's motives for talking tough, then you know they can of course change their mind pretty quickly and easily. But if they talk too dovishly in the short term, then that might encourage a more general softening of financial conditions. So they are encouraged to talk tough. And I think that's a part of what they're doing. And um, it's just saying, look, um, you know, unless the, the data softens meaningfully, then we're going to continue to um, maintain a, a pretty tight monetary stance. I think that, that's part of what's going on. Um, but of course, um, you know, what the Fed is looking for is um, a slowdown in inflation um, and a softening in activity. And at the moment, the activity data is holding up really well. Best exemplified, of course, by um, the ongoing strength in labour markets. I think, you know, in that regard, as you sort of alluded to, the yield curve has historically been a very good and accurate indicator of um, meaningful slowdowns in the US economy. And uh, the fact the US yield curve sloped to negative um, last year would suggest that at some point this year, um, we should expect the US to dip into recession. Although at the moment, all the indicators are looking pretty robust. Uh, probably worth noting that, you know, that there is some time variability in terms of the predictability forecast of, um, of the yield curve. Uh, you know, usually between about six months and two years, an average of about 12 or 13 months. So if you sort of apply the average, then that would suggest that the US would not enter recession until um, sort of the second half of next year. If you apply the shorter end of that time frame, then maybe it's as early as the second quarter. But I think regardless, um, the US economy still looks pretty robust and any slowdown we'd expect to be um, relatively muted. I think, you know, that brings us to the third point, which is inflation. And um, in that regard, inflation also, um, as I mentioned earlier, looks like it, it's starting to roll over meaningfully uh, in the US, driven by you know a whole host of factors, uh, you know, partly this freeing up supply chains um, that we saw, um, saw those pressures build up during the COVID crisis, and those now look to, uh, you know, look to be easing. And also, of course, uh, energy price, uh, energy prices have um, softened a bit, and that too will feed into inflation. But there are sort of a couple of elements that look a bit stickier in the US, uh, notably shelter, which makes up about um, a third of US CPI. 
and uh, that will of course um, react with a lag to higher interest rates so that will eventually roll over um, and certainly looking at some of the housing indicators the market is softening but that will just take a little bit of time to feed through into um, broader inflation and of course the other element is services sector which uh, very much um, uh, you know, has been impacted by higher input costs and um, the uh, the rising wages in that sector but uh, those elements look a bit stickier, but other elements look like they're rolling over a bit. And on balance, we do see inflation coming down as the year progresses. Well, one of the things that I found quite fascinating um, about the market versus the Fed expectations is that this time last year, we were talking about how aggressive the market was relative to the Fed and, um, and how behind the curve they were. Uh, and now the market is actually flipped 180 degrees where the market is actually much more dovish than the Fed is, whereas 12 months ago it was much more hawkish than the Fed was. Um, uh, and I think, um, you know, the, the old adage that, um, uh, you know, the Fed um, has a uh, poor record on forecasting, but a good record on um, impact, <laughs> which I think is, you know, really certainly comes to mind where when I think about... Um, uh, Know, expectations and where they were 12 months ago and where expectations are now. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, um, yeah, the market is usually, not always, but usually correct in this. And it relates to the point I made earlier about the Fed um, needing to talk tough, even if its actions subsequently don't um, meet its its current expectations. And, you know, as you noted, the Fed was um, wrong in terms of its outlook last year. Um, so it now has a job to do in terms of rebuilding credibility and ensuring that the market perceives it as still having strong inflation-fighting credentials. So I'm sure that's a part of what's going on in the Fed at the moment, whether implicitly or explicitly. Paul, you're going to say something? No, I just had you seen the um, minutes of the December meeting this morning. The Fed sort of notably irritated that the market was not expecting rates to go up. (laughs) Don't they believe us? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, and and uh, certainly I said it was completely the opposite twelve months ago. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yes. Uh, that certainly has a has a meaningful impact. Um, moving then on to the UK, which um, uh, has a has a different credibility problem, where the Bank of England probably has a lack of credibility around fighting inflation, um, um, and uh, I, I, you know. <laughs> I guess we're seeing sort of similar similar things, but UK's credibility, both um, um, uh, the sort of uh, inflation for fighting credentials is clearly damaged, but uh, long-term potential is also not looking that great. Yeah, I think the UK faces a whole number of challenges. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the challenge of Brexit, which will be expected to bring down long-term growth. And then... Um, on top of that, uh, you know, inflation looks particularly sticky. There's, you know, uh, uncertainty around the Bank of England and what it's expected to do. I think, um, you know, it's not so much a question of whether or not the UK will experience a recession. It, it almost certainly will, and it may even be in one already. It's more about the depth of that recession. Um, and I think, um, uh, you know, whilst it is possible the UK will experience a mild recession, um, certainly, if the Bank of England continues to hike rates, then it looks likely that the recession will be a bit deeper and a bit longer. So, tough set of conditions. We we heard this week Rishi Sunak uh, proposing a load of policies that would seek 
at least partially to try to mitigate the downside, but it is a very tricky set of circumstances. I think, you know, one thing that um, a recent um, report highlighted was the fact that uh, in addition to the standard demographic challenges that many developed economies are facing, the UK is facing an additional problem of early retirement. And that, of course, is um, hindering growth in the workforce, which um, naturally will tend to be a further impediment to growth. So a very challenging set of circumstances there for the UK. And on top of all that, with inflation being pretty sticky, um, it uh, just makes it a, a you know very tough situation for the UK economy. It was uh, interesting uh, looking at next results uh, this morning, which were much better than expected. Um, and it certainly... Um, uh, just highlighted one of the themes that we talked about is consumer discretionary spending is probably a little bit better than people think uh, in terms of uh, excess savings. I guess um, looking at this picture, those excess savings are going to be used up pretty quickly. Um, uh, so yeah, that's right. I, I think it's, you know, it's sort of a bit of a double-edged sword. Wage inflation has lagged price inflation, um, which is good in terms of you know, the inflation outlook, but it's bad in terms of spending power. So there's that sort of trade-off as ever between, you know, growth and in inflation stroke policy. Uh, you know, the, the higher that, that wage inflation goes, then the more likely we get to see a, a bit of wage price. I'm not going to call it a spiral, but a bit of feedback in that relationship. And the more that's going to encourage the Bank of England to hike rates. But equally, the you know, if wages don't go up at all, then you're going to see spending power crimped. And I think, uh, you know, Arguably, you know, what we're seeing at the moment is a, a bit of the savings that are built up during the COVID crisis, thanks to the government's largesse. Uh, some of that is now being used to support consumption expenditure, even as real incomes contract. Um, but yeah, it's encouraging, our, you know, indeed that consumption is at least holding up in the short term. And maybe that gives the Bank of England and uh, the uh, the government a little bit of time to uh, to try to resolve the situation. Mm. Well, certainly housing is probably what we will talk about. You'll be talking about next next quarter, I'm sure, in the UK. I think it is. House prices have already shown sort of at least three months now of, uh, of negative moves. Um, so let's move on to Eurozone. Uh, and we briefly welcome Croatia to the to Eurozone. That's one way of solving your, your labour problems is just expand the country, <laughs> expand the region. Uh, certainly that's been one way of, how uh, Europe has been uh, able to tackle uh, its challenges uh, with aging populations or retirements in Germany and Italy. Um, but obviously Croatia makes it into it. But but I guess uh, generally the, the more, uh, or in the short term at least, the more important uh, feature was the ECB uh, and, its, um, uh, and its relatively hawkish stance uh, in, uh, in December. Oh, indeed. Uh, the, the rhetoric taken by President Lagarde and other central bankers after the meeting uh, was indeed uh, significantly more hawkish than it was expected before the meeting. Not much in in the size of the decision that was taken in December. 50 basis points uh, increase in the refinancing rate was uh, uh, widely anticipated. But uh, the guidance for the next few meetings was definitely much more hawkish with uh, uh, the likelihood uh, being uh, you know raised by by president lagarde herself of a series of 50 basis point rate increases 
in the early part of uh, of 2023, which would, uh, if if uh, can if materializes, uh, that would easily push uh, interest rates to four percent or above in in not too long a time, which is definitely something that markets were not prepared for, and uh, has, has had to uh, you know adequate uh, their their valuation and and uh, attitude toward that uh, very different environment compared to the last 10 years. We then sort of look at, um, I guess, Eurozone um, inflation. Obviously, good news on gas prices, and I guess a very mild winter has has certainly um, made a significant um, uh, difference in, in people's bullishness, given that European equities are up, uh, certainly in the first few days of the year, up around 4% plus. Uh, already, um, we we do touch upon um, uh, the European equity market um, here in terms of its composition, and um, it's a very interesting chart actually showing how much it's changed over the last twenty years um, compared to what it used to be. You can see in uh, you know financials, um, you know made uh, a you know made up nearly a quarter of the entire market back in 2002 and and now it's you know 10% less um and then you've got sort of healthcare consumer discretionary IT and so on and so forth making also uh, quite a big impact on, on the indices um which uh, you know one of the theses that we've been arguing um certainly over the last sort of 3 to 6 months first is the the china being the kind of catalyst the second the composition of the market is very different. So you're not buying the same set of, you know, um, uh, I guess unattractive industries that you were buying 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, um, where you're buying a, a much more sort of balanced profile of, of, of companies. So certainly from a market perspective, it certainly looks a lot more attractive. And then kind of linking that into um, uh, the returns uh, or potential returns is, is the currency. And, uh, Generally, uh, I just note um, how undervalued the euro looks, uh, and also beefed up by by a more hawkish ECB. Oh, indeed. If I may take a step back, one uh, kind of confusing feature of the current uh, uh, monetary policy setting is that the ECB sounded uh, more and more hawkish of late, despite the increasing evidence that inflationary pressures are waning, and uh, that one thing that. Uh, central bankers in Europe have always highlighted that is the risk of second round effects, i.e. increase of wages as a response to higher inflation, is not really materializing. So one would have expected that uh, the ECB would have kind of happy of the developments, uh, seeing her credibility uh, beefed up by past developments, and uh, kind of uh, as a consequence of that, being ready to take a more a flexible approach to future monetary policy management. Now, that is still possible. Uh, uh, a few times already in the past uh, 20 years of life of the ECB, they eventually had quite uh, a sharp uh, uh, turnaround, uh, often unexpected. Uh, when eventually data confirmed that they were mm, kind of going out of sync with reality, so to say. And I I would not be surprised if that happens. Of course, not uh, likely in January or early February when the next meeting is uh, is scheduled, but possibly when uh, the next uh, round of macroeconomic uh, uh, projection will be released in March, 
maybe then there will be more evidence also for the governing council itself to kind of take a more balanced approach to uh, the anyway needed monetary policy normalization. And of course, that would eventually benefit also the currency, which indeed did not really benefit much since the ECB took a more hawkish stance uh, in mid of last year. Actually, the first reaction from markets to the more hawkish stance by the ECB was to actually sell the euro as if uh, they did not believe the ECB was taking the right uh, course of action. Uh, of late, that has changed, uh, also because indeed the euro looked a bit uh, undervalued, uh, excessively undervalued. And and of course, if the, uh, the monetary policy setting gets more aligned with the need of the economy, that of course could continue to uh, support to support the euro. Uh, despite the still higher inflation of tradable goods in, in the Eurozone compared to its trading partner, which is not uh, over, over the longer run boarding well for the common currency. Mm. I guess the other important point is, is that, you know, going back to the Croatia point, is that um, you know labour flexibility and thinking about wages and why European wages have not moved, where you know, clearly we've seen surprisingly inflexible labour in in uh, uh, in the UK and and even in the US, which is which is quite interesting, you know clearly we're not seeing the same inflationary forces in Europe as we've seen in those countries, um, and wage growth has been much much more muted, which suggests, you know, the the ECB and the eurozone is obviously a little bit more credible. Um, it'd be interesting to see if uh, as we go through the course of this year and then and next year in twenty twenty four even whether this sort of credibility kind of continues and, and makes investing in Europe a lot more of a, you know, interesting exercise given Europe has generally underperformed from an equity standpoint, you know, over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, is there a bit of a renaissance? A big, big question mark. Um, talking about renaissance, um, we, we or, or lack of it, I guess, is, is uh, SMB and, and Switzerland. Um uh clearly um uh you know uh, they also increased interest rates again sounded a little bit hawkish like the ecb um uh, your thoughts uh, yeah also the smb kind of joined the party of a bit more hawkish uh, communication from central banks in mid december although to definitely a lesser degree than than the than the ecb did uh, the uh, way that uh, more let's say uh, aggressive rhetoric was conveyed was uh, uh, the upper revision of inflation forecast by the SMB, which surprisingly, again, given the lower than uh, the SMB itself expected inflation recorded in the last few months, uh, were increased for the latter part of 2023 and early uh, 2024. And then uh, after bottoming in mid-2024, the SMB would project inflation with the current level of interest rates rising again above uh, and and outside um, uh, of the uh, 0 to 2% target. The consequence of that is, of course, that the message is that the SMB is ready to increase rates again. But as we've seen after the, the meeting, inflation uh, fell more than uh, was expected, and it is now below the SMB own uh, projection for early 2023. And that was well, of course, for having uh, some positive surprise in, in on inflation that could allow the SMB to uh, kind of yes raise rates again, but maybe not as aggressively as other central banks 
will most likely be forced to do. And of course, the ECB is first on the list. So moving over to um, Asia uh, now, and uh, we'll bring in bring in uh, uh, Joaquin. I guess the big excitement in December was um, the BOJ and the fact that they uh, changed their uh, band very, very slightly um and uh and uh, obviously reflecting the um the higher uh, inflation rate um uh, that they had a, a 41 year high for japanese inflation that's right so inflation in uh, in november reached uh, 3.7% year on year uh mostly reflecting two two main things which are common for for other countries uh in 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 uh, during last year which were the higher important costs in this case as a result of the weaker uh, japanese yen and also um the the higher global commodity prices and, and, and energy prices so we expect both of these things these, these uh, drivers of inflation to reverse in 2023 so we expect that inflation in japan also this level of high inflation in japan won't be persistent uh, for for much longer um, but yeah you're right the, the Bank of Japan has uh, taken a, a quite a particular approach with the with the yield curve control uh, and it, it kind of reinforces the argument that some of the, the, the Japanese policies sometimes go um, quite uh, heterodox let's say or unorthodox uh, in in the way that they, they try to control some some of these um, uh, economic issues they they face um and yes they have widened the the the, the band for the for the 10 year um but if inflation remains well anchored we, we, we probably would not expect the, the the japanese yen to continue to um the, the yields to continue to to increase uh, much further um i think the other issue with with japan is also uh, and we have highlighted this in in the outlook for for this year is the um, the strength of, of corporate earnings, which have been a characteristic of, of the Japanese economy of uh, Japanese economy for for quite a, uh, some time, growing much faster than than actual GDP there. Uh, and this is mostly because corporate profit um, uh, margins, let's say, have um, have expanded quite significantly. So we, we expect that this will continue to be a trend this year, and, and that's why we, we've had a, quite a positive view on, on Japan for this year. Now, the other um, uh, area we touch upon is uh, foreign exchange reserves mm. uh, and uh, you know, how that has uh, you know, changed uh, and its current uh, composition. We actually did earlier today have a quick look at how that's changed over the last sort of 10 or 20 years. Uh, but um, uh, I thought this was uh, particularly interesting in terms of um, our view that you know does Asia or does China start to um, to exercise its influence in terms of reserves? Yeah, clearly China would like to have a much uh, bigger participation, let's say, in, in global reserves. At the moment, it's still pretty marginal, it's below five percent of, of global um, foreign exchange reserves. Um, the problem there would be let's say the fact that the, in china the capital account is not entirely uh, open and that's why it's it, it's an issue for for international um, investors and for international organizations to hold much of the of the, the running b so then we would need to see mm, a significant change in, in policy there which i don't think it is expected this this year um maybe some other countries uh, so we saw a change 
marginal change, but but change in, in, indeed in when um, uh, when we saw introduction of the the Canadian dollar or, or the Aussie dollar into into part of the the reserve. So maybe some other Asian economies, maybe Korea, maybe uh, New Zealand, could also um, uh, appear here. But for the time being, yeah, over the last ten years, probably the. the the stability of the dollar as a, as a, as a foreign currency has been has been quite significant. Mm. We we did have a look at it over, over time, and what was interesting is the euro reserves had actually come down uh, you know, significantly. The pound actually interesting went up, which mm. was which which just shows you that foreign reserves are not great currency traders over the last ten years. Um, but I, I thought that was um, uh, so that I think that was quite interesting. Uh, and the RMB is kind of gradually picking up. It's still small mm-hmm. relative to, to, to the overall size. Uh, but yeah, you certainly would say that uh, Aussie, Australia, uh, Australian dollar probably is one of the probably best candidates or new candidates in that, in that mm-hmm. group, I think. It would be hard to, to see an emerging economy, which China, is, China still is, mm. uh, becoming a, a big powerhouse for, for reserves. I think it's still a lot to work there. Well, if they will certainly want to um, tackle the US over time, that's one thing they will have to fix. Um, so let's move on to Latin America. And um, I guess where certainly in the first half of last year, Latin America was one of the darlings. It's kind of been knocked off its perch over the last quarter or so. Yeah, well, la- last year, I think that the fact that uh, commodity prices were were booming um, and that it was quite an isolated region from the whole conflict in uh, in Ukraine, um, and that could step up as the as a supplier of some of the commodities that that were lacking, uh, maybe that helped during the first say three quarters of of, uh, of last year. Now with commodity prices starting to come down, we won't see that tailwind, although we might see uh, a bit of a pickup in demand from a reopening in China, and that will help countries, particularly like, like Brazil, um, with exports of uh, or, um, iron ore, oil, and soybeans, which, which are some of the, the, the key productions for, for, for Brazil there. Um, However, I think the, the the issues there we can define we can find three main uh, arguments for for the um, uh, for for Latin America next year, and, and we have to divide the countries between those that have good economic fundamentals, those that have a much better corporate or healthier corporate sector, and the ones that have um, political issues. Let's say, um, so I would say. Uh, Peru is clear, maybe clear the, 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 the clear uh, negative in terms of political risk. Uh, it has increased. We have highlighted this many, many times about the, the problems to to um, of governability in Peru, and this has increased again. So that that will t- deter investors. Argentina um, will have elections later this year, so that will create a lot of uncertainty as well for investors. It's a, it's a very volatile country, so can probably rule it out. And Chile, um, there's also an issue with um, the uncertainty over the, the new constitution, which will also pose some some questions over the, the political situation there and the fiscal situation. However, the rest of the global fundamentals in Chile remain solid, and that's been a characteristic of, of Chile over the, over the years. So then we move to the other three, which probably are the m- bit more exciting countries. So on one side, Colombia, 
which has um, which has successfully passed a tax reform that was the first big hurdle for the government and removal of the uh, political uncertainty there. Um, Brazil just have uh, elections and also remove that uncertainty on, on what's going to happen with, with Lula, maybe a much more moderate um, term for, for him this time. Um, and a, a solid, let's say, economic fundamentals where you've already seen inflation coming down, but uh, some of the economic indicators are um, kind of weakening in the, in the first part of the of the of this quarter, let's say, um, and maybe Mexico is, is probably the, the the one we can get a bit more excited with solid economic fundamentals um, and um, a healthy corporate environment with with some some very good companies there. However, the politics will be a bit of a question given that this will be the last year of, of López Obrador in government. So we don't know how if, if uh, he will. Uh, use some of that um, to to his to his benefit. Let's say he he will try to to, to use the political cycle to, for his advantage. So, yeah, let's divide this between two big sectors. Let's say those that that uh, have some healthy economic indicators and that those that uh, the political part is still um, a question mark. Seeing kind of Lula coming in and actually Bolsonaro actually just taking it easy. I think he went on holiday in Miami or something. Yeah, he, <laughs> or was, Florida. Not, he was not there for yeah. the change of, of, of power, which it's quite a bad signal, yeah, um, yeah, given that yeah, yeah. Uh, he still has uh, 48% of the support in yeah, Brazil. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. he's not completely out of the government. His party still has a quite significant representation. So yeah. I don't know, I think uh, some positive signals need to be sent here. Yeah. The two. As a result, he missed Pelé's uh, funeral. <laughs> Correct, yeah. big figure. Yeah, often with these sort of things, it's it's those little things that what I call signalling. To me, always, uh, you you need some of those uh, um, signals to to really sort of drive home. Uh, and that to me was pro- probably one of the outstanding ones just in the last in the last few days. Um, so last but not least, um, we decided to do a bit of a special focus on the um, on the MENA region. Obviously, a beneficiary of China, as we discussed. Um, or China recoveries we discussed a little bit earlier, but also a relatively successful World Cup, especially for your Argentinian. <laughs> Pre-COVID, I went to Qatar quite a few times, uh, not for football, for finance. Um, it's a dusty place. Um, <laughs> and so we just started off with a chart, which is, uh, this is the sort of chart you have in, if you're studying A-level economics, you don't really know much about economics. So let's we'll preface it on that sort of level. Um, GDP per head at different countries around the world. Qatar is the fourth richest country in the world with GDP per head of $130,000. I mean, who's above it? Luxembourg, yes, that's sort of understandable. Singapore, yes, that's understandable. Ireland, serious questions for Stefan Gerlich here. <laughs> I mean, what was he doing in the Central Bank of Ireland? But anyway, Ireland is above it. Um, but it's a very, very wealthy country. Um, we know that that's due to sort of natural resources in lo- to a large extent. But also, I think one other thing, more serious theme, is that they are amazingly good at creating new infrastructure. And that's obviously worked very well for the World Cup. You might say that's a temporary benefit, but they've put a great infrastructure in place. So the sort of Chinese characteristics, if you like, you know, build it and they'll come type, type of approach. Um, but the MENA region, uh, is, is sometimes, it's somewhat difficult to define it because there are different definitions. On the, on the World Bank's definition, it's the GCC countries, um, so Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, 
Kuwait, Oman, uh, and Qatar. Uh, um, uh, you include those countries, they're the biggest ones, and then a range of other North African countries. On the World Bank's definition, that is a bigger region geographically than the United States, quite a, quite a lot bigger, uh, in fact, uh, and generally has favourable demographics. Now, we talk about other developed economies and even many emerging economies. China, we talked about the demographics being unfavourable. But that's not the case in a lot of the MENA region, and specifically in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the largest sort of economy, the one that attracts the most attention, it's got the biggest stock market, which we talk a little bit about as well. But the population is still growing. Okay, so that's a tick. But we know that when populations are growing, you've got to employ people. Now, that's not always so straightforward, but Saudi Arabia seems to be doing a good job of increasing the participation rate uh, in two particular ways. Women have entered the workforce to a much greater extent. And we know when we look around the world over the last two decades or so, I can say that because I'm old now, um, that increasing participation rate in economies like Japan, female participation rate, in the US before that, has been very important in generating growth. So more women in the workforce and a growing population. And then on top of that, um, an increase in the expat workforce. Now, reading this about Saudi Arabia, I was a little bit surprised because you hear about expats. Well, no longer we use expats very much around the world. You know, you have local sort of labor. But Saudi Arabia needs expats to do all of the sort of high tech stuff that they're doing to reconstruct the economy with the sort of Vision 2030 sort of program. Um, so in those two respects, growing population, more people working, greater participation looks fine. What's the third element of growth? Well, it's how productive they are. Now, historically, um, if you're an economy which has got a big sort of public sector and money comes, let's just put it like this, money comes easily because you just pump oil, yeah? It's not really conducive to sort of great productivity. Um, but productivity growth should pick up if you think it's a technological infrastructure-driven development that we can look forward to. So in that respect, it looks actually a very interesting sort of macro story. Um, the other one, which is, I think, really fascinating compared to other economies is, you know, we talk about the twin deficits, don't we, when we look at economies like the US in particular. Oh, my word, it's got a current account deficit and it's got a government fiscal deficit. Oh, that just causes all sorts of problems, twin deficits. All of the GCC region has a surplus on both of those measures. And if you add together the current account surplus and the government fiscal surplus, that comes to 38% of GDP, both Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So you say, oh, can they afford all of this new infrastructure spending? I think the answer is fairly straightforward. There is no constraint. It's not like here the public sector is, here being the UK, public sector is constrained because we, you know, we just don't have the taxation abilities to fund, fund public sector projects. It's no problem. Um, and you're not reliant necessarily on foreign capital, although that's quite, you know, quite willing to come to those regions. Mm. So I think it's a really interesting and an optimistic picture looking at the sort of basic economics, you know, the, the generators of growth, 
and also what infrastructure might do infrastructure development might do in terms of propelling long-term growth and equity markets really in the early stages of development i mean saudi arabia is a bit different because it's got saudi ramco one of the most if the, one of the most if not the most highly valued sort of uh, company in the world depends on what's happening in the tech stocks this week and next um so a good story, I think. Mm. Very interesting story. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly one of the areas that we we are paying particular attention to. Um, um, certainly in in the equity markets, and uh, you know, going forward, certainly as a alternative within within the emerging market sector that uh, often gets um, uh, overlooked. But but certainly, I think uh, it's interesting. It's one of the few markets that actually did quite well last year. Well, yeah, uh, of course. And it's a I mean, you know, we include in the MENA region. Israel. Now, for many years, you've been very careful about saying that, but uh, Tel, Tel Aviv to Dubai is one of the bu- busiest airline routes in the world now yeah. um, because of the reopening of trade. So, yeah. different region. Yeah, no, yeah exactly. Different region yeah. to what it was in the past. Yeah, no, absolutely. Even, I think even Saudi and, um, and Israel have got various different joint initiatives going on now, which is, indeed, yeah. which is uh, absolutely fascinating. Well, on that more optimistic note, thank you very much, Paul. Um, thank you very much, uh, everybody, for uh, contributing to uh, this insight uh, yet again. Uh, again, very interesting deep dive into uh, probably the most important drivers for financial markets over the next um uh, at least the next quarter or two. Uh, but thanks, everybody. Um, we are going to be um, playing you various different presentations from our investment summit, the EFG Investment Summit, that will be taking place uh, on the uh, 9th and 10th of January. So we will be um, um, uh, sort of putting the podcast on pause with some excellent content that will come from uh, from the summit. Uh if you can attend, please do. Uh, just reach out to us to get an invitation, uh, an, a virtual invitation. Uh, and uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time to, um, uh, to get back to business as usual on the podcast. So with that, I uh, wish you a very successful investing in 2023. And, of course, please reach out to us if you need any help with any of those uh, themes or comments we've been making here in this presentation in our 2023 outlook and of course in um, our future podcast thank you very much <laughs>